Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to reu hotels and resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Thursday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little-known fascinating facts and figures behind your favorite TV shows, movies, music, and more. We're your two Midwestern micro-scenes of <laughs> minutia. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtalk. Jordan, today we're talking about one of the lodestars of the 90s indie rock boom, a defining record for both Chicago and the increasing ranks of women with guitars throughout the era. That's right, we're talking about Liz Fair's Exile in Guyville, which turns 30 years old in June. I wanted to introduce a bit where I started pronouncing it in French, Exile in Guyville. <laughs> Um, you know, I didn't, I never really had too much experience with this record growing up because I kind of came of like investigating music age when her allegedly misbegotten and now reclaimed as all things must be as brave and innovative uh her pop attempt came and so i just saw her on mtv and vh1 with that pop song what is it called what is it even called why can't i uh but i kept seeing that cover and that name in like the rolling stone lists and the spin lists and and, and everything and i was just like what is going on with this but, um, you know, I never really got around to it until I did like a big deep dive in kind of that Chicago, like the roots of like Chicago, because I'm a huge tortoise fan and I like Jesus Lizard and I like Steve Albini. So I was like doing a bunch of lists. This was like 10 years ago. I was like reading about Chicago a bunch and I finally put this record on. And I was like, well, OK, I get it. I kind of like PJ Harvey's Rid of Me, though, better. Oh, yeah. uh, that record makes this one. It's like. Black Sabbath versus the Beach Boys. Um, not that I'm pitting women against each other. I'm just saying that one's a little bit more on my... I'm not so much into the kind of twee, mumbly, jangly pop stuff. Even though it's sexually explicit, though it may be. I'm, I'm more like, give me the heinous guitar tones. Uh, what about you, bud? Yeah, I kind of came at this album from a similar place. 
I think I mentioned this numerous times on this show, but I was born in 1987 and I spent most of my childhood pretending that I was living somewhere between the late 50s and the mid 60s. So my engagement yes. with any sort of pop culture from this era that I actually grew up in was pretty spotty. I started to get with the program in like the late 2000s as I was graduating college. And I'm fascinated by stuff that happened before I was born, but the stuff that actually happened like in my childhood in the 90s is still kind of a blind spot for me. Mm. But the music that I know best from the 90s is courtesy of my father, which despite mm. my own boomer tendencies, my actual boomer dad never stopped listening to new music, which is something that I've always admired oh, about him. Yeah, he's got really great taste in music. So Big Dick Runtog. Big Dick Runtog, yes. Incredible <laughs> taste in music. While I was listening to Dion and the Belmonts and Ricky Nelson around the house, <laughs> Like, no joke, he was playing, like, Nevermind or something. So, which was a fun little, like, Alex P. Keaton role reversal that my friends always sure. got a big kick out of. But my dad's favorite albums were almost without fail, usually by female singer-songwriters, especially in, like, the really passionate, tempestuous, pissed-off vein. Mm. Uh, Jagged Little Pill was a huge one around the house. So was Fiona Apple's title, mm. uh, Tori Amos's Little Earthquakes, Amy Mann, yep. and Exile and Guyville definitely fit this bill. And uh, I remember hearing it around the house sometimes, not quite as much as Jagged Little Pill, but it really wasn't until the 20th anniversary in 2013 and the resulting tidal wave of retrospective pieces that I realized just how revered this album is, which led me to giving it a well-deserved re-examination and appreciating it for the groundbreaking work that it is. It really is. And I mean, there's, there's so much of like, there's so much contextualizing that always helps stuff and, and, and helps me check when I'm not like impressed by something. And, and so I definitely hear how like in the music scene at the time, like hearing this record and like blowjob queen and and run and all that it, it's just it is it was like quietly revolutionary um and i'll try not to let my scene politics uh, poison that well but so from the actual geological location of guyville <laughs> to the weed fueled lengths fair went to mimic and or tweak the rolling stones exile on main street as an influence to the seething backlash she faced when the record took off here's everything you didn't know about exile in guyville question go on geological location does that mean rocks <laughs> is, that, is that a rock joke nope that was yes uh, well, well i mean, <laughs> I mean I... <laughs> it is now <laughs> uh i'm gonna only read one of my headers here that i was marginally proud of this is a subsection called exile in chaiville because they call it <laughs> chai town actually i've heard chicagans hate that so oh, uh sure. maybe cut that Man. jordan could we get uh lori lightfoot on the phone. <laughs> hated Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Uh, to contextualize Fair's record and the scene it came from, we need to set our sight seven years prior to its 1993 release in the magical year of 1986. Welcome to Al Heigl's Scene Corner. <laughs> Alf was on the airwaves. <laughs> uh, Metallica's uh, Kill 'em All had just come out. Other things were surely happening. I'm sure we even, have friends that were born that year. I just yeah. don't know them. Yeah. Well, f*** them. Uh, that was the year when the Near Northwest Arts Council, or NNWAC, a Chicago nonprofit to support local artists, was formed in the not particularly bustling neighborhood of Wicker Park. 
which in the urban renewal uh, trends immemorial was characterized by a lot of unused industrial space, much like, you know, Soho when, when the free jazzers and the minimalists took over all of their lofts in the 1960s and, you know, Bushwick in the in the early 10 to 2010s. Um, two years later, uh, that organization set up an office at the Flatiron Arts Building at the intersection of Milwaukee, North, and Damon Avenues, and they started holding a series of exhibition and performances that began the classic life cycle of, um, how should we say, underperforming, underutilized, <laughs> under... What's not racist? Help me out here. More buildings than than other resources. Um, oh, I like that. How about that? Yeah, uh, and started transforming the neighborhood of Wicker Park into an artistic hotbed. Um, in her 33 and a third book on exile in Guyville, author Gina Arnold writes, When I knew it, in the early 1990s, Wicker Park was one of those slightly dangerous, edgy neighborhoods where lofts and practice spaces were cheap to rent, where young women didn't wander around alone at night without an escort, and sometimes even the escort was nervous. The storefronts were run down and the bars were all dives. There were coffee shops rather than cafes and one bought one's clothing secondhand. This all begins to change as Nirvana's Nevermind makes its merry way into the monoculture. And at this point, there was a huge influx of money into Chicago as uh, recording legend, Chicago icon and crank about town, Steve Albini <laughs> told Pitchfork in 2016. He went on to say, you can't overstate how much that changed everything. Independent labels and bands stopped being sidelines and became growing concerns. Speculators wrote absurd checks to bands on very little evidence, sometimes without a note of music in the shops. Labels sank fortunes into promotion, buying out venues and offering tickets for free, paying headline bands for support slots and festival positions. Radio payola guys made a mint buying airplay to break bands in different markets. Lawyers got involved, some specializing in the independent major interface, crafting complex documents that were more likely to expire unfulfilled than run to term. Bookers became booking agents and managers. Local booking agencies became international players. Money changed everything, and one of the things it changed was the expectation bands had. Some bands saw this insane inflation as their birthright. Local journalists, bought off with access and promotional spending, began to write about this freeding frenzy, as though it were the renaissance of a music scene that had been percolating along nicely regless. The man's got away with words. He, he sure does. Yes. I'm going to uh, get a business card printed up for you. This is Crank About Town. <laughs> crank at large. Uh, <laughs> Chicago, like a lot of major metro hubs that weren't New York or L.A., nurtured a thriving underground scene in the 1980s and 90s. There were a number, an enormous number of DIY labels uh, in Chicago, um, and then a bunch of aggressively weird bands like Albini's Projects, Big Black, Shellac, uh, Jesus Lizard, and then through the 90s, this turns into, there's also like a big jazz sub, uh, subculture where guys are getting into making what's called, I, I guess has been termed in retrospect, like post-rock which is essentially when you get a bunch of guys who like jazz into a studio and they don't want to make a jazz record. The Tortoise is like the biggest band from from like that kind of scene. There's another band called The Sea and the Cake. Um, Jim O'Rourke, a big Chicago guy, uh, and he's just one of those musical polymaths. Um, of course, Wilco. How could we forget Wilco, who would later adopt Chicago? Um, you ever been to Chicago? Yeah, yeah, I like Chicago. My aunt, my, my aunt, uncle lived there. Uh, yeah, my aunt's a, that my, my uncle's a longtime University of Chicago professor. I did not know that. Wow. Yeah, I like I've Chicago. I just can't deal with it. It's too f***ing cold, man. During the winter, that's dead off the lake 
breeze effect or whatever uh, they call that. Yeah. No, thank you. Uh, even the legendary British DIY folk punkers, the Mekons, adopted Chicago as their base of operation in the early 90s. Guyville, actually, though, is a nickname for Wicker Park, which itself was also called Bucktown, uh, <laughs> came from the band Urge Overkill, who you will most likely remember from their Neil Diamond cover on the Pulp Fiction soundtrack. Girl, narrow, narrow, narrow. That's our driver kill. I've told. I'm told they did other things. Uh, they have a song called "Goodbye to Guyville" that was released in 1992. I feel like if they had just kept calling it Bucktown, that's got more snap. Maybe not Wicker. Yeah, yeah but Guyville's more evocative, though. I feel yeah, like it's true. In a bad way, but more Well, please, tell us about that, Jordan. Yes, yes. Uh, during an appearance on the show All Things Considered, Liz Fair elaborated on the concept of Guyville. She said, quote, It was a state of mind and or neighborhood that I was living in. Guyville, because it was definitely their sensibilities that had that aesthetic. You know what I mean? It was sort of guy things, comic books with really disfigured, screwed up people in them. This sort of like constant love of social aberration. You know what I mean? <laughs> this kind of guy mentality, you know, where men are men and women are learning. Mm. Her sound bites are so funny to me because no one ever crops out all of her like asides. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? What it's what right? Kinda. It's like, like no interviewer ever truncates Liz Fair's quotes. And then ask about what she sees in Guyville. She said that all the guys have short cropped hair, John Lennon glasses, flannel shirts, unpretentiously worn, not as a grunge statement, and work boots. <laughs> Guyville to me sounds like the uh, the thing that the scientist from The Simpsons says. What's that? G yeah, the Guyville. The Guyville. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? That's been exiled. <laughs> who am I? Who am I thinking of? What's his uh, name? Professor Frank, which is Professor just Frank, which is you. just Jerry Lewis. Ha! <laughs> I didn't never realize that. Yeah. <laughs> I've been exiled in Guyville. <laughs> right? When I think about it, it seems dark. It seems cold. It seems exciting and lawless in a way. Fair recalled of the scene to Chicago Magazine in 2019. Like, we were in a transitional neighborhood, and a lot of us didn't have a lot of money, but we all got together anywhere we could and shared music interests, listened to each other recording in the studio. There was a lot of cross-pollination with creative people in Chicago back then. And you actually had to go be with them to get that. There was no internet, so you couldn't check them out online. You had to go see them play. It forges personal relationships, for better yeah. or for worse. Uh, in November of 1993, just a few months after Exile was released, Billboard published a cover story on Wicker Park titled Chicago, Cutting Edge's New Capital, which predictably Oof. hastened the churn from arts haven to tourist destination. In a matter of weeks. Yeah, I... Um, longtime Chicago Tribune music critic Greg Cott, who will make many appearances in this episode, told the AV Club in 2017, I don't think we've ever had an era where you can say, oh, what happened to Chicago music? There's an infrastructure here to support independent music that's artistically minded. It's not focused on that sort of commercial, let's get a song on the radio wave of major label signings that occurred in the early 90s. In some ways, that was an aberration. It came and went almost as quickly as it arrived. We may never see that again, and in some ways, I hope we don't, because I thought it did put this artificial layer on Chicago that in some ways was antithetical to what Chicago's artistic scene has been all about for so many years. So that is the scene that gave rise to Liz Fair's groundbreaking album, Exile and Guyville. Let's talk about Liz Fair, the person at a glance.
Elizabeth Clark <laughs> Fair was born in New Haven, Connecticut in April 1967, adopted at birth by intellectual and affluent artsy parents who worked at highfalutin places like Northwestern Memorial Hospital and the Arts Institute of Chicago. Liz Fair lived in Cincinnati until she was nine when her family located to the Chicago suburb of Winnetka. Big noise from Winnetka, swing band song that my jazz band played in high school. Anybody, really? Anything? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's oh, my only point of reference. Now, my second point of reference of Winnetka is Liz Fair. There you she go. attended Oberlin College, graduating in 1990 with a BA in art history. She told the New York Times in 1994, I decided to make a name for myself and become a fine artist. I had a modern art book assigned to me by a female professor. I started counting, and there were, I think, 15 female artists before 1960. That was pretty frightening. But I figured that after 1960, there were sure to be more. And there were just 15 female artists after 1960. So in a book of 1,200 pages, there were 30 female artists. I just freaked out. I walked around for days telling everyone I could, and they'd say, that's nice, Liz. It was really pretty frightening for me. And Liz indeed supported herself off her charcoal sketches for a time. And she said, I hadn't even wanted to be a recording artist. This is her talking to Spin during the lead up to the release of Exile in Guyville. It was completely a side thing for me, music. I was concentrating on being a fine artist and working on my drawing. But before settling in Chicago, Liz Fair made an aborted attempt at a music career in San Francisco, where she went broke after about a year and returned home to live with her parents. A similar trajectory, if I recall, that uh, Janis Joplin took. Mm -hmm. She went to uh, San Francisco in the early 60s to try to be a sort of a, a beat musician and then got uh, hooked on speed and uh, moved back home with her parents and took a, a correspondence course to be a secretary, I believe. And then she got drawn back into San Francisco. I think I have that right. I believe anyway. you. <laughs> yeah. uh, Liz Fair, she began writing and recording songs into a four-track tape machine in her bedroom, amassing enough for three tapes. The... I, this title, I don't know why this title is as bad as this is. <laughs> I don't even know if I can say this right on the first attempt. Yo, yo, buddy, yup, yup, word to your mother, girls, girls. Gr no, oh, that's the first separate. one, which uh, is written uh, in a disturbing uh, uh, transliteration of Ebonics that I hate. Yeah. The second tape is Girls, Girls, Girls. I can live with that. Mm -hmm. And the third is Sooty. Sooty. <laughs> She passed these tapes around to her friends in Chicago uh, under the band name Girly Sound, which I like. I like that name. Yeah. Yeah. Little little touch of the uh, Tina Fey 30 Rock for you. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other players in the Exile and Main Street story... Nope. <laughs> the other players in the Exile and Guyville story is a guy named Brad Wood, who opened his studio Eidful Music Corporation in Wicker Park in 1989, and John Henderson, who operated an indie label called Feels Good All Over. Another really good name. Liz Fair told Jessica Hopper for Spin Magazine's oral history on Guyville in 2013, I was living this completely post-college, flat-broke, only-cared-about-going-out-at-night existence, shirking my adult responsibilities. I was hanging out at Northwestern with frat guys. I just wanted to get out. John, the aforementioned John Henderson, the indie label owner, John's apartment became one of my destinations. He introduced me to bands and spent a lot of time to teach me about good songwriting, which I definitely learned, but I was only half paying attention to and not taking super seriously. He had a room and said, just move in here. It's super cheap. And we started working on this record. 
And the songs on Guyville, Liz told Pitchfork in 2008, quote, evoke a period when I was on the edge. I was not living up to the expectations of my family. What I had been raised to do, I was certainly not doing. I was scamming my way through life, not really working. And I think I had some self-destructive tendencies, but it was also wild and fun. Brad Wood, who you'll remember operated his studio Eidful Music Corporation in Wicker Park, told Spin, In the fall of 1991, John Henderson, who ran the indie label Feels Good All Over, told me about this amazing songwriter named Liz that he was working with. He thought my recording studio might be the place to make her record. But Fair and Henderson had a falling out, and she moved out of his place by December of 1991 and back in with her parents. Uh, Bradwood told Spin, After Liz moved back to her parents' place in Evanston, I figured that was the end, but the potential of those songs kept nagging at me, and I called Liz in January of 1992. I drove up to Evanston, drove her back to Wicker Park, and she and I recorded F***ing Run that night. It was a big success, and we even had time for a drink before I drove her back home. Hours of driving. Things progressed at that snail's pace. Me driving 45 minutes to her parents, she and I driving back to the studio for 45 minutes, record for a few hours, maybe watch some PBS, drive back to Evanston to drop Liz off, then finally drive back home to Wicker Park. I saw a lot of Lakeshore Drive in 1992. I love that they made time for PBS. You think they were watching Bob Ross? <laughs> yeah. I just realized Evanston was uh, a town Home alone. in Chicago, John Hughes. No, that's Winnetka. That's where the house is. I thought, oh, I, yeah. I was just thinking, yeah. Winnetka yeah. has the Home Alone house. Who knows? Liz Fair could have been the, the McAllister's neighbor. <laughs> think about that. You didn't, yeah. did you? You should have. I didn't. I should. Yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. It'll never happen again. <laughs> See that it doesn't. A few people from this scene have mentioned that Fair didn't have a ton of live experience performing solo or even playing with a band at this point. Patrick Monahan, who founded Carrot Top Records in 1993, recalled Pitchfork about seeing Fair for the first time at a small Polish bar not long before Exile in Guyville, describing her as a nervous performer, a shy girl with an acoustic guitar. Uh, Greg Cott, the Tribune critic, told the AV Club, There was one of two disastrous Liz Fair gigs that I saw early on. She was clearly unprepared for the stage, so those kind of stick out. But the songs were really good. This is kind of a through line in the Liz Fair story. Live performance for her is not really her thing. By the end of, I mean, but by her own admission. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know? Exactly. So yeah, but um, no, I I think a lot of it, a lot of it is gendered, and a lot of it yeah. is really gross. But like there, you know. I couldn't. I found a really truly devastating summary of the evening uh, that C Greg Cott wrote, and then I wasn't able to find it again. But it was like she broke a string on her guitar, um, and like the sound guy had to come and fix, like replace it for her. Uh, and then it was, it, it was something like twenty three minutes later, to the relief of the audience and the performer, <laughs> the the like embarrassing display ended. Something like that. It was yeah. So, but you know. Who among us? Who among us? Exactly. Who among this guy, particularly? Oh, yeah. uh, well, you, well, you got you. You're, you're a machine with that with that right hand. You're a, you're quite a strummer. <laughs> That's how he got his nickname. Is that true, Joe Strummer? Yeah, yeah from his from his right hand attack. Um, mm, so obvious, I thought it couldn't possibly be that. But I guess it is. <laughs> um, but Fair's unpolished approach found its match in Brad Wood. Um, he will get into some of his recording techniques later, which are really endearing and really wild. Uh, but he told the AV club, I think that was the first time where I worked with somebody who was writing really great lyrics and great songs, but also was not encumbered with a band. 
Working with Liz was the first time where I was doing things musically that I had been thinking about for a long time or that I hadn't done since I was in college with my cassette four track and a delay line <laughs> and a couple of microphones just goofing around. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. If you struggle to get in shape and lose weight, I'm about to change your life. I'm Carl, the CEO of Body, and I don't like working out and eating healthy either. So here's how I get myself to do it. I make myself own the morning. And by the morning, I mean the first hour or so every day. It's not family time. It's not for scrolling social media. It's for my results and my health. And man, does it work. Every day, I get out of bed, drink a health shake I made the night before, and then I go crush a workout in the Body app and just follow along day by day. Before most people are even out of bed, I'm done for the day. So here's my offer to you. The next 500 people who go to body.com will get 65% off a full year of access to over 120 programs. 65% because I want you to start now and see how fast the pounds come off and the muscles start popping. And if they don't, hey, you get your money back. Just go to body.com. That's B-O-D-I.com. And let's own the morning together and get healthy and fit. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. Now, a big part of the narrative around Exile and Guyville is that Liz Fair crafted it as a track-by-track response, riposte, to mm-hmm. the Rolling Stones' debauched epic Exile on Main Street. 
She told Spin, I was dating this guy and I was living in this apartment where I was writing the songs for Guyville. It belonged to some friends who had vacated and they left behind these cassette tapes and one was Exile on Main Street. I was listening to it and thinking about how to make a record and I was fighting with this guy. He said, well, why don't you do that one? That's a double record. But he was kind of sarcastic about it. So I was like, okay, I will. <laughs> I listened to it over and over again and it became my source of strength. My involvement with Exile was like an imaginary friend. Whatever Mick was saying, it was a conversation with him, or I was arguing with him, and it was kind of an amalgam of the men in my life. That's why I called it Guyville. Friends, romantic interests, these teacher types, telling me what I needed to know, what was cool or wasn't cool. I developed a very private relationship with this record, listening to it again and again and again. What are your thoughts on Exile on Main Street? Exile on Main Street? It's one of the greatest yeah. records of all time. <laughs> hmm. There's a couple skippers on there. Um, not many for a, for as long as it is. It's too dark for me. It's too uh, the dark. I usually I don't st I don't look away from the darkness, but in this case I do. That, I love the it. Ex Nazi basement. I can't. Well, yeah. It. I mean, obviously there's that, but no. It's just that it's it's also like you know, in as much as the richest rock band in the world could be accused of being DIY, it's pretty DIY. They recorded in, yeah. in a basement yeah. in between drug binges. It's just. And like the the production on it is so good, the layering. I think it's the closest they ever really got to doing the like kind of country soul stuff that the band did. Um, yeah. I think it's a great companion. It's like the British version of the second band album. It's got huh. so many of my favorite songs on there. It's Torn and Frayed is such a banger. It's got Nicky Hopkins. Yeah. Come on, mm -hmm. come on, Exile, Bing Bong. <laughs> <laughs> Greatest album in the world. Greatest album in the world, baby. Yeah, I'm more of a sticky fingers guy. You more of be. a satanic majesty's request guy. You day, yeah, it was to yeah, say you yeah, would be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is he kidding? Well, no. Aftermath. Mm. I'll go with aftermath. Yeah. Black and blue. Black and blue. <laughs> Anyone? <laughs> Goat's head soup. Goat's head soup actually has some bangers. Winter on it. is incredible. Hundred years ago, oh, yeah. um, they call me Lazy Bones. I just love the production on those things. It's so like, it just sounds like. I mean, Goat's Head Soup literally sounds like soup. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. like you're swirling in this seedy mi miasma of like, much like Exile and Guyville, and that's what they talked about with the production here. They were deliberately trying to be like, how do we make this like murky and and weird? And they built all of it around just her guitar and voice, and then added all the extraneous crap to it. Not extraneous, but like added all the weird percussion layers yeah. and sound loops. And anyway, sorry, where were you, where, where were we? <laughs> oh, you were talking about Exile Main Street. Don't get me started on Exile Main Street. Well, of making an album that was a response to Exile Main Street, Liz Fair told writer Rob Joyner, who now writes about MMA stuff. Really. <laughs> Yeah, I tried to, I, I, I wasn't a hundo verified on all the, on this interview that I found everywhere because he doesn't seem to have much of a digital footprint, but from, cause this was like archived on a blogger page. Do you remember blogger? Oh my God. But, uh, Zanga? yeah, yeah. And, but from what I could tell, he now focuses extensively on covering mixed martial arts, which it's the rules? natural progression. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Well, Liz Fair told Rob Joyner, I thought it was a cool structural device, and I wanted to give myself something extra to think about. I come from an academic background, and I got off on going through my little warehouse of songs to find the ones I thought had the same feel or were of the same type. The more I listened to Exile on Main Street, the more it was perfectly appropriate. I began to organize my songs into a correspondence with themes I'd seen in Exile on Main Street. I made lists and lists of what Exile songs were, three words or less. What kind of song was this? and made tons of sequence lists, different orders of the songs I wanted to do. It was like writing a thesis, taking a song of mine and somehow putting it in a dialogue with a song on Exile on Main Street, both sonically and lyrically. I absolutely took it dead seriously. I sat around with stacks, like hundreds of pieces of paper. You have to remember, I was stoned a lot. <laughs> I love that <laughs> yeah. quote so much. <laughs> I was a 20-something no job. I hung out playing guitar all day. I had all this education. I thought analytically, and someone had made a dare. And she describes charting the sequencing of the records with symbols like asterisks or crosses that indicated like a poppier song or a slower one. She continued, I went nuts. I can't tell you. We would go into a studio and I'd be like, you have to have this big guitar solo three quarters of the way through because that's what XL on Main Street has. And the lyrics had to be an answer or my equivalent. I put so much into it and uninterrupted attention. It was like a doctoral thesis. And decades after the release of Exile in Guyville, sometime around 2005, she actually met Mick Jagger. This was around the time she was finishing up her album, Somebody's Miracle, in an L.A. studio. And nearby, the Stones were having a listening party for their latest album. I think it was their last album of original material, A Bigger Bang, in 2005. And a producer, John Shanks, introduced Liz to Mick Jagger. And she recalled, I can barely speak. And Mick is just kind of standing there, not interested in me at all. Like, yes, I've heard of you. <laughs> this is her talking to the Chicago Tribune in 2018. And he basically forgave me for my using of their name to sort of make myself famous. It was not like, wow, thanks for that awesome thing, that great album. It was kind of like, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like what Mick Jagger would have yeah. done. Um, there are a few more obvious links between the records. There's Flowers, which is an allusion to the Stones track Dead Flowers, which uh, does not appear on Allen Main Street. <laughs> Mesmerizing is the name of the Liz Fair song. Uh, Mesmerized is a lyric in Rocks Off from Exile. Uh, and even Shatter, the song Shatter could even be a reference to Shattered, which is on uh, Some Girls. That's the one where Mick Jagger raps. That's uh, my favorite. It's so bad. He's like, uh, what's the one part where he goes, uh, I'm shattered. My brain's in tatters. It's been splattered all over Manhattan. Like it's, it's, he's, it's so for being one of the most dynamic front men ever. He is so astoundingly bad at trying to do this, this newfangled thing they call rapping. Oh my God. It's so funny. It's worse than Blondie. I kind of um, want to punch that in if it wasn't for the fact that that seems like Sue bait. Oh yeah. They get our ass. Fair told Details Magazine in 1994 that while she was still attending Oberlin College, where she graduated from in 1990, she tried to seduce a guy on one drunken night. Uh, I had this big crush on a younger man, and I was so frustrated. I felt like a man dealing with a young fawn of a girl. I'd been dancing around him in ways he wasn't even aware of, <laughs> and all I wanted to, do, and all I wanted to do was get down and bone. Was this you? <laughs> Uh, Fair did end up getting the guy in bed where he did nothing but fall asleep. Oh, yeah, it she was. Said he just, <laughs> she said he just snoozed there. It was ridiculous. Um, yeah, that's great. That's great. <laughs> uh, 
so one of my favorite things about Exile is all the like extraneous noise in it. And they also really loved that when they were making Exile in Guyville because Brad Wood talked about uh, deliberately going like, yeah, and woo, <laughs> while he was doing drum tracks to, to sound like Mick Jagger, like whooping it up in the background of the of Exile where he was not present. That's always my favorite thing about that. There's that they just handed off this behemoth of a record to Mick and he finished it all out an ocean away. Um, He's there for some of it, but he was mostly living, I think, in Paris when Keith was living in uh, in Nelcote in southern France. So Yeah. But he was, he was there for some of it for those basement sessions, but... No, he wasn't. <laughs> he wasn't cool enough. Uh... What was I going to say? Oh, yeah. Uh, they added maracas, shakers, uh, looped percussion, um, because that was their way of trying to get at, like, um, all of the percussion on the Stones rhythm tracks. Um, Wood also used cardboard boxes and uh, pillows that he would put contact mics on and uh, play them through guitar effects pedals for percussion sounds. He got the percussion sounds on one of these tracks by just uh, banging on a countertop with, uh, like, marimba mallets. Um, he told the AV club dance of the seven veils has a lot of that. I used an old sampler that I found in college and used samples. I recorded of a mission in the music department and I was recycling that stuff, pitching it and changing it and putting it on the record. In addition to all of that, uh, you know, he played bass. Uh, he wrote and sang most of the harmonies on the record. As I mentioned earlier, he drummed and there was another guy at, uh, the studio in full, um, Casey Rice, who played lead guitar and, Wood told Spin that Casey devised a great way to set up two guitar amps facing each other with me in the middle with a Telecaster turned way up and depending on which way I leaned would generate a different pitch. He was great at setting up controlled feedback situations. That's what Santana used to do. He would uh, mark off where he would get all the different feedback parts. And uh, that's how they did Heroes too. That all the ever, that stuff that everyone thinks is like an Ebo or like a tape delay. That's just like frip. They they marked off where he would stand in the studio to get that feed that kind of self sustaining feedback drone. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. Cool stuff. Uh, the record was tracked piecemeal. Um, Wood worked backwards, uh, structuring the drum patterns and bass lines around Fair's vocal phrases and guitar riffs, and then Casey Rice would add his lead guitar tracks. Wood told Spin, almost every song on Guyville started with Liz playing her guitar to a click track or drum machine or looped hand percussion. Drums were often added last, which is the opposite to how a lot of rock music is recorded. Ass backwards. <laughs> but Liz Fair was not especially interested in all the, 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 the technicalities of the studio trickery and gizmo stuff. She told Spin... The worst part would be when Brad Wood would talk for a really long time about an amplifier and how it grew out of this and that. And I would just be like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I brought in my own little cheap PV amp and had my own way of setting it. It was kind of like the amp you would buy for a child who you didn't think was going to be good at music and so you didn't want to invest in it. Like the worst possible amp. But it was my security blanket. I would not be taking off this amp with my settings and my guitar. So that is the music of Exile on Guyville. Hagel, tell us about the words. No, because I would like to instead also mention that the secret sauce on another iconic album is a shitty PV guitar amp, and that is... Strokes. Strokes debut record. A vocal sound yes. that has been attempted and copied endlessly, 
And uh, Gordon Raphael said that is, in fact, Julian Casablancas' like 8-watt PV practice amp that they would run his vocals through and then blend that with the clean sound. So, shouts to PV, man. You know, PV gets a lot of hate, but here they are, quietly popping up as as iconic studio tools. Uh, words of exile in Guyville. Uh, Fair's explicit lyrics on and 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 subtler lyrics on songs like i very well blowjob queen she says i want to be your blowjob queen there's not a song let me take that again there's not a song called blowjob queen you idiot she wants to, is she says i want to be your blowjob queen in divorce song or in oh i just made the mistake of just googling blowjob queen that was that was not flower yeah uh fair's explicit lyrics and songs like and run and flower in which she states memorably i want to be your blowjob queen and canary which has its lines i jump when you circle the cherry i sing like a good canary i come when called and there's my new notification when you text me <laughs> well then there's the even less subtle every time i see your face i get all wet between my legs oh actually yeah there's my new text notification from you <laughs> yeah and it's really quietly revolutionary stuff, man. I mean, think about the climate of 92, 93. You've got uh, hair metal is on its last legs, you know. Um, and then you've got dour, you know, hirsute men from the Pacific Northwest. And then here comes this tiny 5'2 woman singing aggressively about, about sex. Um, yeah, I understand why it made such a bomb. I understand why it's why it's gone on to be so... So groundbreaking. Um, as a female, I don't think you're supposed to say the kind of things I wanted to say, or at least I had gotten myself into a position where I didn't feel comfortable saying to people's faces a lot of stuff I said on that record, Fair told NPR in 2008. I had been listening for 10 years to records where guys talked explicitly about sex, and then all the women that came out with music, barring a few like Patti Smith and Chrissy Hind and other people, women were sort of shunted to the area of emotion. But I've always been pissed off, frankly, at the whole myth of, that women aren't interested in sex. If you had 30,000 years of really bad consequences for being interested in sex, you might hide it too. And I wanted to be like, I want to f*** you hard. I want to f*** bad, like now. <laughs> I'm really trying to think of, of any other women who saying, I mean, obviously not this explicit, but like saying that sort of bluntly about sex in the it would have been the early not this time it would have been like the early blues musicians like yeah, Ma Rainey yeah, and, you're and right. um you're absolutely right uh Bessie Smith they were singing really foul shit, dude like <laughs> uh Nina Simone one of my favorite Nina Simone songs is I want a little sugar in my bowl which is not subtle <laughs> um but yeah I mean, around this around this time no yeah, I can't really think of anybody. On the same topic, Liz Fair later said, I felt like everywhere I turned, people were denying my experience of my own sexuality. I was very interested in sex. I wasn't promiscuous, but I was as interested as any boy that I knew. Also, it was the era of AIDS, so I was highly conscious of health. I got tired of reading articles justifying social norms with these really limp studies about how animals behave. They hadn't studied the female brain enough at that point, and they were still trying to tell you that you didn't have a G-spot and that women were less interested in sex. And I'm like, maybe because they married a guy for security and they're just not into him. Like, there are other explanations. I felt like it was really important to want overtly and to lust and to be able to own my own sexuality. 
I was scared to do it, but I felt like it was important to take the territory back for myself. Hmm. Good for her. What do you think about all this? You're kind of a prude. <laughs> well, well, someone's got to have these discussions. I'm just glad it's not me. <laughs> Uh, popular music has always been a vehicle for talking openly about sex, but often that's happened in very exaggerated terms. That's NPR Music's pop critic Ann Powers, who wrote an essay about exiling Guyville for the 2008 box set. The brilliant thing Liz Fair did was talk about sex in a normal tone, as if it were part of her normal life. I, I guess sort of the tonal, the tonal, what's make it, what makes it so tonally interesting and so gripping is that, um, you know... She she is mar marrying that kind of slacker affect and that kind of slacker yeah. like can't be arsed <laughs> to 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 enunciate or really get too bothered about things in uh in this really frank and explicit stuff. That's I just you know never I didn't put that together until now because I'm a dummy. <laughs> All that said, Liz Fair told writer Rob Joyner that, quote, a lot of Guy Villa's bullshit, total made up fantasy crap. That stuff didn't happen to me. And that's what made writing it interesting. I wasn't connecting with my friends. I wasn't connecting with relationships. I was in love with people who couldn't care less about me. I was yearning to be part of a scene. I was in a posing kind of mode, yearning to have things happen for me that weren't happening. So I wanted to make it seem real and convincing. I wrote the whole album for a couple people to see and know me. There wasn't one synopsis that would cover the record in terms of, was it made in reaction to this scene? Was it made as a feminist statement? Was it made as a love record to try to talk someone into paying attention to me? This is her talking to the Village Voice in 2008. It was all of those things. Like, is it true? Yes. Did I make it up? Yes. The problem <laughs> is, in the years and years of talking about this, that what's true is a multiple thing. Sure. <laughs> uh, they needed more money to finish the record and Fair on Wood's advice called up Matador Records whose head Gerard Cosloy had happened to read a review of the girly sound tapes in a fanzine and this is where I start to get really really bitter uh -oh. calling up calling just just calling up Matador and being like hey can you put up my record and the guy just happens to read he happened to read a single review of your work in uh in, in a uh, like a self-printed not even rolling stone just like a, a zine a, a regional zine yeah and they sent her between three and five grand uh it was enough to let her move into wicker park and finish the record closer to the studio i liked it a lot cosloy told the new york times in 1994 and played it for everybody else we don't usually sign people we haven't met or heard other records by or seen as performers but i had a hunch and i called her back and said okay the famous cover art for Exile in Guyville with its uh, conspicuous nip slip. Can I say that? It's kind of delisted, but sure. How about how about it's it's aus it's auspicious with its auspicious areola? <laughs> Is that better? Anything there? No bad ideas in brainstorming. <laughs> yeah, there's no bad ideas in brainstorming. Uh, that wasn't even the original concept for that cover. Apparently, the concept art as we got it was something to urge overkill, which is the second way in which this record is indebted to a band I have heard one song about from. And Are they good? Do you know anything else about mm, them? I'm, I'm not super familiar. Fair told Vulture in 2008, I turned in a still from a friend of mine's student film for the cover of the CD. 
It was an orgy of Barbies floating in a pool. Matador was like, what the f*** is this? They called up Nash, Cato, of Urge Overkill, and asked him to help. So he comes to me and he goes, Lizzie, listen, the record's great, but they're not digging this. Why don't you go into the photo booth, take off your shirt, and leave on your necklaces? Gross. Hmm. Uh, my words, not his. Uh, and then, li- or hers. And then uh, Fair continues. And before I went into the bathroom, he was like, oh, and remember to put lipstick on your nipples. Because I have very light pink nipples. And I figured it was some weird porno thing he knew about. Like, wow, that's why the nipples always look so good. You got thoughts on that? Lighting's important. That's, uh... <laughs> I gotta say, I never noticed that there was... The nip? The nip? Yeah, in, in the album cover, yeah. Well, I mean, I was always seeing it at about, like, a one inch by two inches in, like, Rolling Stone or Spin. I don't think I saw it in a record store physically until years later. Um, anyway, uh, I was, she said, I was always game to try fun and somewhat reckless things. And the last shot was just sort of, wow. And that became the cover. And that one little nipple showed, which was a big deal later on. Over the years, various labels have cropped it out. Uh, I believe it has since been placed back in for the various reissues. So, good for the nipple. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. If you struggle to get in shape and lose weight, I'm about to change your life. I'm Carl, the CEO of Body, and I don't like working out and eating healthy either. So here's how I get myself to do it. I make myself own the morning. And by the morning, I mean the first hour or so every day. It's not family time. It's not for scrolling social media. It's for my results and my health. And man, does it work. Every day, I get out of bed, drink a health shake I made the night before, And then I go crush a workout in the body app and just follow along day by day. Before most people are even out of bed, I'm done for the day. So here's my offer to you. The next 500 people who go to body.com will get 65% off a full year of access to over 120 programs. 65% because I want you to start now and see how fast the pounds come off and the muscles start popping. And if they don't, Hey, you get your money back. Just go to body.com. That's B-O-D-I dot com. And let's own the morning together and get healthy and fit. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. 
But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. Buzz around Fair's release started building from basically the second that advanced tapes of Guyville hit the streets. Um, and she was already looking a little askance at it. She told the Chicago Reader in January of 1993, I'm completely serious about success, but I also realize the pitfalls of that, you know. But what's going to happen to me if everyone thinks it's hot sh- Am I ready for that? Am I prepared to achieve at the level I might have to? That's a very prescient quote. And now we go back to Liz Fair's uneasy relationship with live performance. Some uh, kind of shaky early gigs didn't really help the perception that Liz Fair was a rich, ambitious girl from the suburbs who hadn't paid her dues. Greg Cott quoted the Chicago-based thrill jockey records head Bettina Richards in a 1994 Tribune article as saying, The only thing that's aggravating is that there are other female songwriters I love that couldn't understand why they're not getting the attention Liz Fair is. Barbara Manning, for one. To me, her lyrics are so sophisticated, but she's also not as aggressive about wanting to be successful. I don't see her ever putting her chest on a record cover. And even Liz Fair's former supporter feels good all over record head John Henderson bashed Fair to cut for, quote, talking about how male dominated the record businesses in her interviews and then hiring established figures such as Will Boatwin to be her manager and Bob Lawton to be her booking agent. I don't know who those names are, but I assume they're very powerful men. I mean, or at least they are men. Um, men, yeah, yeah. Men. And this is where the backlash is. This is this is honestly, I don't co-sign this, but I do find this to be the really interesting stuff because the politics around like what would have been considered sellout and ambition were so they are so foreign to us these days. There's no way you mm. would talk about any female artist like this today, or any artist who just wanted to get famous or wanted to sell records or like you know had a had a. a like the nipple, a nipple shot on their record, you know, like we talked about it. Like I know like Cardi B and Megan the Stallion got like, like got in trouble for WAP, but it certainly wasn't coming from their own like home team. You know, it was coming from, yeah. it's always, it, nowadays it would be coming from like conservative media. This is like the like area record labels, like slamming her in the paper. That's crazy. It's such an utterly different climate. And in the same Greg Cott piece in the Tribune, Liz Fair defended herself, essentially, by saying, My critics saw me as the lucky daughter that the new daddies are going to take and make. And they ask, why do I deserve it? But it's not about deserving it. It's about the path of least resistance. I'm accessible enough in so many channels, and you can sell me really well. Which is very self-aware. Yeah. her. It's funny. Her self-awareness and, like, candor and everything 
either comes across i can see why people were like turned off by her and and like annoyed by it and thought that she was just kind of this johnny come lately and very brash and getting a lot of unearned uh resources and and hits and everything but it is so funny the way that she's just very astute about the business and kind of her place in it you know um Casey Rice, who played guitar uh, on on Exile and Guyville, told Spin for their oral history. <laughs> he said, "I agreed in some respects with the, with the criticism of the backlash. It, it backlash. It did seem unfair in that regard." And then here's the here's the real nut of that quote. But when was the music business about being fair? <laughs> <laughs> so always, you know, grain of salt there. Um, the record was a critical hit. It was number one album in the year-end critics poll and Spin and the influential Village Voice Paz and Jop critics poll. And by Chicago Indie Standards, a financial hit as well. By the spring of 94, it had sold over 200,000 units, peaking at 196 on the Billboard 200. It was Matador's most successful release at the time. In 1998, it was certified gold by the RIAA, which is 500,000 copies, right? Mm-hmm. It was like a bomb went off, Brad Wood told the AV Club. There was everything before Exile and Guyfil, and then there was life after that. Nothing has been the same since. Gerard Cosloy, who is a head of Matador, told New York Times, If you had told me we were going to sell 5,000 copies, I would have been satisfied. If it had been twenty or 30,000 copies, I would have been pretty shocked. There was no precedent for it in my experience. The sales were generated by a lot of word of mouth and by Liz's hard work. And Liz herself reacted to the warm reception of Guyville by saying, quote, I don't really get what happened with Guyville. It was so normal from my side of things. It was nothing remarkable other than the fact that I'd completed a big project, but I'd done that before. Being emotionally forthright was the most radical thing I did, and that was taken to mean something bigger in terms of women's roles in society and women's roles in music. I just wanted people who thought I was not worth talking to to listen to me. But, Fair also recalled to Rob Joyner, Nobody in my neighborhood liked me after the record came out. I'd walk into bars and my friends would be debating. She dyes her hair blonde. She can't sing. She came from the suburbs. They were so furious with me because I didn't deserve the attention I was getting. They'd been slogging away in the city, being indie for 10 years, and I get out of school, throw this thing together, and boom, I'm the poster child for indie. And she sang about this phenomenon in the song Never Said, which she wrote to be the album's big radio single. She put it as the fifth track on Exile and Guyville because that's where she felt the most crucial songs should go on every album. <laughs> Case in point, on Exile on Main Street, that's where Tumbling Dice went, which was kind of mm-hmm. a pseudo-radio hit. Fair later said of Never Said, It was just kind of like about the music scene and how catty it was. People were always getting upset about something that someone had said about their band or whatever the latest gossip was. It was a very, very catty little incestuous scene. She added to the Book Club Chicago in 2018, There was also a lot of blowback when my record blew up because I hadn't been in the scene as long. I hadn't really paid my dues in their minds. Maybe it was a suburban thing where some were like, oh, rich girls getting all the attention. I think there was a sense that people felt they were waiting their turn longer. That was a little upsetting, as well as how they took the sexual songs on my record and amplified it, which I didn't have anything to do with. Lots of bands were talking about sex, but they picked mine up and turned it into like a Playboy centerfold thing. That was actually traumatic for me. I got a little anorexic during that period because I felt really exposed and didn't know what was going on. I wanted to impress the neighborhood, and then I got picked up by this national media thing, and I got a little lost in there. How do you feel about all this? About her 
kind of not knowing what was about the backlash. Just about this backlash. You've been part of it. You were part of our little uh, micro scene in Brooklyn where people get, mostly me, people get red-assed about other people's <laughs> success and uh, paying your dues and so on and so forth. I mean, I understand that from a, an emotional standpoint, how galling that can be. But also, if you have somebody coming along that makes a piece of art that resonates with people right away in that moment i don't think it's something that should necessarily have to be earned i think it's something yeah. that, that that you made the right piece of art for the right moment yeah i have aged into thinking that but a small and secret part of me <laughs> is still full of rage <laughs> such such rage because it i mean yeah yeah i don't know man it's it's tough it's it's really the whole major label feeding frenzy of of like independent music in the nineties did this to of the nineties did this to like every f-ing scene. You know, they did it yeah. to in Berkeley in San Francisco. They did it in Seattle. They did it in you know Portland. They did it like they just parachuted in and a couple people. And it was never a rising tide lifts all boats. You know, the rising yeah. tide in the music industry, the rising tide doesn't do for the other boats. <laughs> So it's like, yeah, I, I, I understand the bitterness and, and I understand. I just, I think if anything, she probably uh, didn't help her case by like immediately abandoning like Chicago and, and, and going to become, cause she, she moved into like film and television composing and stuff and then going extremely pop. Like it's not that she, it's not just that she made a, she, she parachuted into a scene and profited off from it. She uh, abandoned it and never looked back. So I understand that, but you know, also whatever, dude. Musicians getting paid. She wrote she wrote songs people like. That's it. You know? You either die an indie hero or you live long enough to become a producer. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh bar none, the most famous bit of hatred from this era comes from Steve Albini. Albini is probably more famous, most famous for his work as a producer, uh, engineer, um, stuff like Nirvana's In Utero, Pixie Surfer Rosa, a million other things. Uh, but he was also sort of an enfant terrible of the Chicago underground for quite some time. Uh, it's funny that everyone is like, Steve is actually a really nice guy. <laughs> and, and he's also actually really mellowed out since he did. He actually wrote like a very long and heartfelt thing in Mel magazine of all outlets being like like gracefully and maturely and like apologizing for all of his like provocateur that he did and and real and owning it and being like i'm sorry i was really me at the time i'm like doing a bunch of work to to you know correct that and i hope i can be forgiven for that stuff um so i find that really sweet but he was also in a band called rape man um and his band uh, Big Black had songs about child abuse, cat being slaughtered, uh, and he was very famous for uh, what 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 a different generation would call his poison pen. Um, he would just constantly write these screeds to to mostly the Chicago Reader because he he really had a bone to pick with Bill Wyman the right the the critic not the stones bassist but probably him too uh (laughs) and like maximum rock and roll and he (laughs) he wrote probably his most famous to in january of 1994 uh the previous december bill wyman had named 
Exile on in Guyville to his best of year-end list, along with Urge Overkill and the Smashing Pumpkins, and had written this defense of them, saying that the backlash to them from the underground scenes was not deserved. And uh, Albini wrote him an open letter called Three Pandering Sluts and Their Music Press Stooge. <laughs> And in it, he takes aim at Fair, Urge Overkill, and the Smashing Pumpkins and their, quote, calculated and overbearing hype barrage. Uh, And then some truly devastating lines. He says, these three are not alternative artists any more than their historical precursors. They are by, of, and for the mainstream. Liz Fair is Ricky Lee Jones, more talked about than heard, a persona completely unrooted in substance, and a f***ing chore to listen to. Smashing Pumpkins are REO Speedwagon, stylistically appropriate for the current college party scene, but ultimately insignificant. And Urge Overkill are Oingo Boingo, wieners in suits, playing frat party rock, trying to tap a goofy trend that doesn't even exist. (laughs) Obviously, history has proven him wrong about the Smashing Pumpkins, but damn, that is a a withering (laughs) put-down. In his column, though, he did concede that Fair and her album are probably the least offensive of the three you focused on in your column, which may explain why you think she is any good. Uh, Wyman later wrote of this backlash, and, and particularly his relationship, his patronage or whatever of her in 2016. He wrote, I like gossip. The free flow of information is great for journalists, particularly back then, when I was one of the few people who had a public outlet for it. But I gotta say a lot of it was heavily sexualized and felt hostile. One letter to the editor slamming fair said I was, quote, trying to get a whiff of Winnetka pussy. That was typical of the tone. The Chicago Headline Club, at its annual comedy show at the Park West, did a weird skit that implied we were sleeping together. A local journalist named Ben Kim was really vicious in trashing uh, Fair's live shows, and then in response, uh, she canceled an interview with another journalist who worked for the same outlet Kim did. Even at a local level, it was just ugly. And this is maybe goes some way in explaining why Liz Fair started to sort of sour on uh, her feelings for Exile and Guyville by October 1994, a little over a year after the album was released. She told the New York Times, I can't feel these songs anymore. I have to act like I feel them. It feels very scammy to me. It feels very much not a sincere element for my music. I can get really upset about this. She continued, if performing live is a livelihood, I'm never going to make any money in this business. They can try really hard to make a performer out of me, and I'll rise to the occasion, but I'm much happier making the art. And if this messes up my career, I can accept it. I can be poor again. Some people just take to performing, and it feeds them, but it drains me. What feeds me is to have an actual project for my efforts. Where is it written in the good book that if you make records, you have to play live? There's plenty of bands out there playing live. What do they need me for? I don't (laughs) think I can give it up for a couple of years, but there's no way I'm going to play this out. I may make albums for a really long time, but in terms of promoting them, that's totally finite. Again, very self-aware, very very self-assured and self-aware. Her follow-up records, 1994's Whip Smart, Whip Smart, and 1998's White chocolate space egg, all one word. Uh, no, I reject that. They didn't flop exactly, but uh, nor did they quote unquote capitalize on the momentum from Guyville. Then, of course, in 2003 came Fair's self titled record. She was open about the fact, and had been since 1998, that she wanted to make money from her songs. 
And so she hired the songwriting and production team The Matrix, who had produced songs by Britney Spears, The Backstreet Boys, Ricky Martin, and of course, Avril Lavigne's deathless hit, Complicated. Uh, Fair told the Washington Post, At this age, I wanted to feel more like an entrepreneur, not just a dumb artist. I wanted the work-to-reward ratio to be more recognizable. First half of that is a little clunky. The second half of that, I understand. Mm -hmm. Uh, She had been open about this, uh, the financial side of her career before. Uh, She sang, It's nice to be liked, but it's better by far to get paid on a song from 1998 called Loads of Money. (laughs) (laughs) The first single from the self-titled record, Why Can't I, charted on the adult top 40 and hot adult contemporary charts, and its music video landed fair in heavy rotation on VH1 for the first time. It sold respectably, but not enough to earn her the f*** you money she probably wanted for making such a blatantly commercial pivot. It took until 2018 to even be certified gold. Ooh, 15 years. Th- wow. That said, I did take a look at the Spotify numbers today. Why Can't I, this single, has 35.2 million plays. All the Exile and, Exile and, and Guyville, the Exile and Guyville stuff, the top stream is a f***ing run with 6.9 million. So, sit on uh, like a soundtrack or something. I'm trying to figure out why that song's so much higher than the rest. The numbers don't lie. It's probably on a bunch of like 2000s throwback playlists. Yeah. Would be my bet. Well, Liz faced yet another backlash from fans of her earlier, more idiosyncratic work. Though at least some aspects of her songwriting remained unchanged after this very divisive self-titled pop album. There's a song on that album called HWC, which stands for you say white hot. Hot, white, hot, what do you, white. What do you think Liz Fair would be singing about? Not chick, I imagine. <laughs> no. Oh. Uh, I mean, she, I want to be your blowjobs, chick, queen, uh, hot, white. Okay. Don't, yeah, don't make me say it. No, I won't. Thank you. Uh, another song on the record chastises a younger lover by saying, your record collection doesn't exist. You don't even know who Liz Fair is, which that's a great line. It is. It's funny because it's sort of a meta tweaking of like what she wrote about exiling Guyville, that she was surrounded by all of these guys talking down to her about music. So now she's like flipped it. That's uh, either very clever or very grating, depending on where you stand. I like that. Yeah. But critics for the self-titled pop album were savage. New York Times critic Megan O'Rourke titled her review Liz Fair's Exile in Avrilville <laughs> and complained that Fair, quote, gushes like a teenager, having, quote, committed an embarrassing form of career suicide. Matt LeMay at Pitchfork gave the album a 0.0, sniping, it's sad that an artist as groundbreaking as Fair would be reduced to cheap publicity stunts and hyper-commercialized teen pop. And... <laughs> Liz Fair would later come at Megan O'Rourke by saying in 2019, Megan ought to try wearing some hot clothes and having a good time. She might be happier. <laughs> uh, she was kinder to Matt LeMay at Pitchfork, the guy who gave her a 0. 0.0. Uh, he apologized for his, quote, condescending and cringy review. And uh, Liz forgave him. She tweeted that she enjoyed his pan much more than others because it, quote, had some humor in it. I, for one, remember none of this controversy in 2003 when she went pop. 
This seems oh, like a really? Dylan going electric type thing. I have no memory. Oh, I remember it. I remember it on people talking about it on MTV and VH1. I think it was even landed in some of those. Because remember Jewel did it too? Yeah, Jewel I remember much more from. Yeah. Much more of. Let me listen to this damn song. We're going to do one of those YouTube react videos. Hmm. I think I always thought that was like Michelle Branch or Hilary Duff. Yeah, I remember this song. Yeah. It's kind of a banger. I, I like it. I like it quite a bit. Or like Ashley Simpson. Yeah. She sounds so young. Look, I don't know how they treated her vocals. Probably a lot of pitching. Uh -huh. It's that. It's the panned yeah. radio effect delay that instantly marks it as a 2000s production. No, I can see why you would hate it if you, like, Exile and Guyville was part of your, like, like right on your shelf next to, like, Slater Kinney and PJ Harvey mm -hmm. and Tori Amos and Fiona Apple. And, and then this comes out after five years. You'd be like, what the f*** happened? <laughs> but, you know, conversations around selling out were very different even 20 years ago. Fair, wait, wait, in an interview with Vice, Fair explained of this song, Why Can't I? My hope was that someone would hear the song in the gym and buy the record and then start buying my albums and sort of have an awakening. That's a story. Sticking to it. Yeah. Did she think that? Did how did, and, that, and how did that go for you, Liz? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I hate to... I hate feeling like that I'm coming off as negative to her as I am, but I understand, I understand every, I, in like a much less tolerant part of my life, I was Steve Albini and I, yeah, I, it, 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 rich girl coming in from the suburbs and joining your scene, walking away with, uh, 200,000 copies of a record sold, never coming back or making music that sounded like that again. Yeah. I get it, but I still find her very charming and funny and self-aware and obviously a great songwriter. And, um, you know, she doesn't seem particularly damaged over it. Uh, although she did say in a 2010 interview with consequence of sound, uh, the interviewer asked if she felt trapped in a can't win situation between her critics and her fans. Uh, and she responded, I've given up on the win thing. Oh, um, so, yeah, you know, we've spent a lot of time dwelling on all the gossip and all the backlash, but it's better to dwell on that original pure spirit of the album. Uh, as Fair told Spin, it's that girl I was growing up, that girl having people say, you can't do this, you aren't good enough to do this, you don't know what you're doing, and me getting enough rage in me to say, I have as much of a voice as anyone, and even if I didn't have the education or the musical knowledge, it didn't stop me. Folks, thank you for listening. This has been Too Much Information. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtug. We'll catch you next time. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtug. The show's supervising producer is Michael Alder June. 
The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to reuse hotels and resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com.